This episode is sponsored by Angular Dev Summit, coming September 11th through the 18th, 2017. Hi, it's Chuck from devchat.tv. I reached out to some of my friends in the Angular community to put on a completely free, no travel conference for Ruby developers. We have speakers like Rob Wormald, Jeff Welpley, and others coming to speak about all kinds of topics in Angular. So if you're trying to learn Angular or you're trying to level up Angular, come check it out. The talks are happening throughout the day each day and we'll have a chat available during each session. Attending the talks is free, but you need to register. Go to angulardevsummit.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of My JS Story. This week, we're talking to Matt Krieger. Matt, do you want to say hi? Hey, Chuck. Hello, everybody. So Matt works for an interesting company called Manifold. Um, they're actually a sponsor of the show, but he's got an interesting JavaScript story. And I think also just the entrepreneurship side is something that I hear about frequently, but we don't always talk about on the show. So you know, a lot of things to dive into here. But, you know, I don't know if you have more you want to say as far as an inter- introduction or anything. No, I think that's pretty good. Where do you want to where do you want to kick it off? How far back into my sorry <laughs> childhood do you want to go? Uh, let's go ahead and jump in on where you got started programming. Oh, boy. Yeah, we do have to go. We have to go way back into my memories, I guess. Yeah. So I was born 1984. The Mac launched in 1984. I tell you that the Mac and I grew up together, but I was a PC guy until uh, only a few years ago. My dad was um, a dentist in the British military, so we were moving about once once a year until I was 12 or 13. Uh-huh. So a lot of that time, I was I was a pretty I was a pretty solitary kid. I was running around in the forest, and before I fell in love with programming, I sort of fell in love with um, technology. My grandparents bought me a Game Boy and I would, I was like, <laughs> I was married to that thing. Like I just loved my Game Boy. I'd never put it down. They also bought me my first computer. It wasn't my computer. It was my dad's computer. It was, uh, it was a gateway 2000. I, uh-huh. I don't know if you remember the gateways, but they had like the cow print yep. boxes. And I think I got access to internet around the same time. So I was like 12 or 13 and it came through um, CompuServe, which I think was the first major commercial online internet provider. Right. So I was, I was playing on uh, Usenet and I was sending email as if I was my dad pretty, pretty early on. And I'm not sure whether he was um, attempting to encourage me or if he just couldn't keep me away from the thing. It's, it's too far back <laughs> to remember, but I, I, I just, I spent all of my time on that computer and because we were moving around so much that kind of became the way that I I stayed in in touch with people eventually we immigrated to Canada where um where I live now so mm-hmm. the, I'm the east coast of Canada Halifax Nova Scotia and um that was kind of that was where I did I did most of my my growing up and at that point I think my dad considered the computer like a necessity so he kept it in the house and I remember like taking it apart him coming in and freaking out at me. I remember formatting the hard drive accidentally, and him <laughs> and him actually just buying a replacement because he couldn't figure out how to how to get it get put it back together again and get the operating system running. Oh man, yeah, good times. I remember getting a second a second phone line and um and li- just so that my parents could make a phone call because I was always on I was always on the internet. Um, I don't know. It's like it, it, it's all the small things that I think kind of led up to it. But um, I had a friend, uh, one of my friend's older brothers, and he 
like it, it's amazing how small things over time, 20 years later, how much that, that one little gesture mattered. I was over at his house and, and he'd got a, gotten a game for Christmas that he wasn't interested in playing because he was a console guy. It was called Ultima Online and it was one of the first massively multiplayer online games. Uh-huh. And somehow I managed to talk my uncle and my cousin who were both in the uk at this point so we've we've left the uk we're in canada and i have really no nothing nothing in common with them anymore and this game became a conduit to like my family in the uk mm-hmm. now my uncle um he's he's been in the it industry since he was a kid too he was switching tapes uh every time that you go to the bank machine and you use your debit card um there is a there is a part of that code base the original code base that my uncle contributed that's his cut like claim oh to wow fame. <laughs> so yeah so he he um my cousin and i we were playing this game all the time and he couldn't keep up with us so he decided that he was going to start um scripting his character's actions and you know he was essentially cheating in this game but but i was just like i was in awe of this like i got a glimpse at the wizard behind the curtain and i kind of became obsessed with becoming the wizard like right. I want to understand how he was doing this magic. And now looking back, I know that it was Lua, some combination of Lua and C++. Um, but at the time I had no idea. So I just kind of started taking his scripts apart and, um, and using them to automate my own character in the game. And like, man, I was like, what was I 13, 14? Mm-hmm. I was doing, I was skipping school. I was staying up all night. Like this was a obsession for me. Um, my first programming book I bought as a result of not being able to figure out how to get my character to do what it wanted. It was uh, one of the C++ Bibles. Um, and then I became active in the forums around the around the scripting language. So I was like helping I was helping other people write these scripts and I was sharing the scripts that I wrote. Um, and it became anybody that's familiar with MMOs knows that like there's 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 a cash market outside of the game. So at this like age, I started to realize that I could harvest stuff in the game and sell it for real life cash. Right. Um, so yeah, man, that, that's kind of, that was my first, first encounter. And, uh, to be honest with you in the real world, things weren't, things weren't going so hot. My mom and dad were in the process of splitting up. And as part of that process, we lost our home. My mother moved back to the UK. This is getting, this is getting personal. Let's go personal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> uh, my mother moved back to the UK um, to attend school and me and my brother and sister, we moved in with the Wicked Witch of the West, my stepmother at the time um, and my father. And so I was kind of acting out. I started to like mm-hmm. use these skills to cause havoc at school. I was like helping kids cheat on keyboarding tests. And I was, I launched a, a wearers site called War Wearers that was successful enough that it got noticed. And of course I got in, got in a little bit of trouble for it. Um, and so it was kind of like to call the situation volatile would be, would be a, a, an understatement. It was, it was like, you know, the cops sort of stepped in at one point and were like, you have to shut this website down. And, you know, I had the principal calling my parents and saying, Hey, your son's suspended for helping these kids cheat on this test. And, and, um, I, it wasn't too long after that, that my, my grandparents in the UK got sick and my dad, ended up going back to live in the UK and left my sister with me. So at that point I was in school. I'm, I'm in university at this point and, um, I'm working at future shop telling people about computers mm-hmm. on the evenings and weekends and I'm waiting tables on the side just to kind of get by. 
and my computer just languished. Like, I, I don't know, I associated it with the trouble that I'd been in and I just didn't touch it for a few years. I focused on school and kind of just getting, getting my own, my own life in order. Huh. That's quite the story. Man, oh man, it's not. That's not the end of it, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> Code, coding is a is a coping mechanism, but uh, absolutely, you know, no, I, yeah, I think it is. I mean, at the same time, it's you know, I, I I don't know. I mean, it it seems normal. You know, you go to something that you can control. Yeah, and anyway, it it's really interesting. You know that. Yeah, I mean, most of the time it's like, yeah, it was really interesting, and so I decided that was what I was going to do for the rest of my life, is the story I hear when people find it about the age you did. And, uh, you know, it's like, it almost sounds like it was this, yeah, it was this way of just taking control of your life and, you know, feeling like there was something that you could, you could do. Yeah, I mean, it gave me, it gave me a conduit to a role model in my uh, uncle. Yep. You know, and, and he was somebody who was stable when I went to get my, for my first job. I mean, I honestly, I haven't thought about this for 20 years probably, but when I went to get my first job, um, I was just flat broke family had all left. Uh-huh. Um, and this job I had an opportunity to get, I needed a car to do it. And I called my uncle and I was like, Hey, listen, I need a thousand dollar deposit for this car. And he came through for me. And, and it was like, that's this, that's, that is my uncle to me. You know, he's that person in my life who every time everything else is going a little, is a little crazy, he steps up. And uh-huh. I, just, I always associated spending time on my computer programming with, with him and that role model. So it was right. always, yeah, it's definitely a, a stabilizer in my life for sure. Um, and I never considered myself technical. I never considered mm-hmm. programming a career. I didn't look at it when I finished school. I, I, I was working at, um, future shop, which in the U S is a lot like Best Buy. And, I, I got comfortable chatting with people, getting out of my comfort zone, and that was kind of the first place I think I started to build like interpersonal skills. And I was just translating CPU and RAM um, into something meaningful for people who were shopping for computers, right. right? And it was like, it just, I started there, and then I wanted to measure my own performance, and I, and I, I wanted to help other people measure theirs, so I built tools that took the data we had in head office and turned it into reports. And, and the manager started using that. It became, it became a nationwide program. And suddenly I'm, I was kind of on the map at future shop and I was leading a, leading a team. And it wasn't until uh, future shop started to kind of, I mean, it was, it was future shop. So it was like, it was a stepping stone. Um, my team was flourishing and I was kind of climbing that like corporate ladder at future shop. It was, it was a crucible for me. I think future shop, it was like, Seasonal sprints. We're desperately trying to hire, onboard, execute, hit sales projections. Um, It was it was where I learned about the real world, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I had a lot of friends at Future Shop. One of them ended up at BlackBerry, and um, I'd never have considered applying at BlackBerry. Um, I thought maybe I would go and do I don't know some kind of web design or web development thing. But um, he pulled me in for a conversation with the manager, and I really didn't think it was going to work out. But he'd put his neck out on the line for me, and mm-hmm. he was somebody that they trusted and respected there. And when they started the technical interview, I realized, like, I have the answers to these questions, you know? And I don't know right. whether – it wasn't imposter syndrome. There was no syndrome. I just hadn't thought about it until uh-huh. I was put on, put on the spot. Um, and so I, went, I rolled through a technical interview. I ended up taking on um, – uh, 
essentially a, a strategic technical. I wasn't initially, I was just a technical issues manager. Um, and that role was super simple. We took, uh, I had a data science team and that data science team was responsible for identifying and prioritizing issues. And if you're familiar with BlackBerry, it was like they had their fair share of issues. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so sometimes those issues were solved with code and sometimes process, but we were basically responsible for getting these cross-functional teams together and tracking down the problems and then putting that process or code in place. Right. So not not much in the way of product chops at BlackBerry. I don't think there ever was, but they had some really, really great engineers and those engineers took me from hacker to engineer. You know, they, they helped put the polish on my, on my skills. And I was using, we were using like node 0.4, very, very early version of node. We were using, um, shortly after that, I discovered angular and, um, I started to kind of dive headfirst into the angular community. Cool. So was it BlackBerry that you got into JavaScript? Mm. Yeah, man. So, so uh, BlackBerry, BlackBerry had this uh, Hadoop system. You'd write a query and it, you would wait a month for a response. So if you wanted to understand, no way. How, yeah, <laughs> if you wanted to know how the business was doing, you'd wait a month to, to hear about it. I mean, that's an extreme case, but they had all of the standard things you'd associate with an enterprise, right? It's like, uh-huh. you want to get a, a VM set up? Well, then you put an order in with the IT group and a couple of weeks later, it might get assigned to you. Um, so so I think I looked at Node because I was trying to figure out how I could do real-time, um, real-time analytics. I wanted the data to come in. I wanted to parse it. I wanted to do something with it. I wanted these dash- dashboards that the data science folks were looking at to all, to all be updated in real-time. Um, and Node was the way that I made that happen. So that's that was kind of my first my first um, step into into JavaScript. And at the at the same time, I was getting like pretty frustrated with the culture in the enterprise. Um, BlackBerry was starting to honestly like I'd been there for their heyday, and they started to wind uh-huh. down a little bit. Um, and at one point, you know, they were kind of escorting my friends my friends out the door and. I I was known as like the the local grave robber because I would go and grab all of their hardware and monitors and I was building myself like a fortress of solitude inside of the BlackBerry building. Oh wow. Um so but uh, I was also kind of on the side. I was the the Halifax community was starting to take off. The Halifax uh, developer community was starting to take off and a couple of local companies had started to run hackathons. So I was going to hackathons all the time and um I met the the crew that would later become my co-founders there, um, they had a company called Go Instant. Go Instant was doing this um, real-time collaborative, um, these real-time collaborative user interfaces, um, and it was like early, early days WebRTC. Honestly, even before WebRTC, we were hacking the browser to make it happen. Um, so I ended up kind of hopping from um, BlackBerry to becoming a full-time front-end developer at a startup shook my world a little bit <laughs> nice so did you wind up going to go instant or just meeting them at the hackathons no at, at those hackathons i mean hackathons have changed hackathons uh-huh. have changed like hackathons at this point in time you weren't i was i was talking to uh, sataria one of our associates she um organized la hacks uh, one of the organizers at LA Hacks, and she was telling me that most of the pe- reason people go to these hackathons is because they want to win, and they w- want to put the fact that they won on their resume. Uh-huh. And in my day, that is not what hackathons were like. You got together with a bunch of friends, 
you spent 48 hours like eating potato chips and building cool stuff. Uh-huh. And then you all celebrated after, right? And you, yep. you celebrated each other's wins. And I don't know when it changed, but it did. Um, and, and these people, they, they became my friends. They contacted me shortly after and just said, hey, listen, we'd, we'd love you to come in and kind of go through our technical interview process, um, which was which was pretty rigorous. It was, I don't know, five or six interviews, but it all kicked off just because I worked on the team with one of the one of the folks that worked at GoInstant. So, yeah, I, I joined them shortly after that. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. And yeah, I mean, I, I've been to a couple of hackathons. Usually when I'm going, though, I'm kind of just seeing what people are working on. I, I've not. I think I've been a participant in one or two. Um, You're a celebrity now. You have to go and judge them. You don't get to participate anymore. You know, it's funny. I haven't been asked to judge, but I've I've been to a few of them where it was, hey, look, can you cover it? Can you talk about the stuff that people are doing here? And, uh, you know, so I almost go as press more than anything else. Interesting. Uh, um, but, but yeah, it's interesting because, yeah, some of the folks are there and they're there just to have a great time and write some awesome code. And then you've got other people that are there and they're there to try and essentially they want to win and have a startup or win and, yeah, put it on the resume or, you know, somehow prove how awesome they are. And that, you know, anyway, it's just kind of fun and interesting to see, you know, which teams seem to do well and the ones that are really enjoying themselves and, you know, they're taking seriously what they're doing, but for the most part, they're, you know, they're there and they're there just because it's a cool place to be are generally the ones that do well in those anyway. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think sometimes the prizes can act as a bit of a negative incentive. It's, it's, you know, they, they really work hard for the prizes and, and sometimes they actually end up becoming more creative as a result because they know they need to use a specific combination of APIs. And uh-huh. so they try to figure out what they can build that will, that will be useful with those APIs and they come up with cool, creative stuff. And, and sometimes yeah. it's not it's not so great, but yeah. yeah. But it is a cool part of the community, in my opinion. So I think so too. Fully I, in fact, I am I am determined to bring back that low key uh, '90s skateboard park vibe of hackathons. Um, so yeah, you'll have, if I if I manage to pull pull one together, you'll have to come and uh, cover it as press. Yeah, yeah. Let me know. <laughs> um. So yeah. So. One of the questions that I ask is what contributions do you feel like you've made to the JavaScript community? Oh, cool. Okay. So, um, well, when I joined GoInstant, I mentioned that it was, it was very, very early days, WebRTC. It was very early days um, with even like WebSockets were new at that point. And uh-huh. the thing, the, the, so GoInstant at that point, you're probably more familiar with Firebase. Firebase is, is uh-huh. still around yep. and still serving developers. Google and, bought them. Yeah, Google bought them. Um, so, so in the early days, GoInstant and Firebase, I'd like to think were neck and neck. We were competing mm-hmm. for the same the same developers, and we were right. working on a lot of the same problems. And the tools that we were building were things that did um, real time synchronization between the state you have in the client and the state you have on the server. Yep. And so, a lot of those a lot of those tools that we built, open source tools. They went with GoInstant to Salesforce or when GoInstant um, was acquired, uh-huh. but they inspired the libraries. And honestly, a lot of it is probably even the same code base that you now see in libraries that do much the same things with, thing with, uh, with Firebase or Meteor. I have no idea how many. Hopefully that uh-huh. inspired some people. So that was probably the first thing. And then <clears throat> most recently, um, we built Taurus. And mm-hmm. Taurus is a... Uh, 
one of the things that we realized when we were, and honestly inspired us to build or to start Manifold, one of the things we realized pretty early on was that if we were going to start taking advantage of, if we were going to build smaller applications and we were going to start to use more cloud services, more services tailored towards developers, then we were going to have a lot more credentials that we had to manage, a lot more mm -hmm. credentials that needed to be secure, that needed to be shared with our teammates, um, and, and that needed to be, we needed to be able to take those credentials and put them in our applications wherever they were running, whether that's a right. Docker container, on Heroku, wherever it might be. Um, and so that's probably my most recent open source project, Taurus, something we launched um, towards the end of the year. And it's, yeah, the code base is open source and should ch hopefully check it out. Awesome. What are you working on now? So uh, that Manifold is, the, is our, is, I guess, is our latest project. We're trying to make sure we're trying to build a marketplace for developer services. Um, how long has it been now? It's been three months. So we moved from. Taurus to building uh, to building Manifold earlier this year. The launch, the official launch, hasn't even necessarily happened yet. That's uh, hopefully to come later this year, September. Um, if it is something that you want to try out and experiment with, um, I set up a, a coupon in our in our newly built, explicitly for um, <laughs> MyJS Story. It was built this week, so we can issue coupons. We we set up a, a MyJS Story coupon. That gives anybody that wants to go and give it a try before we launch um, a $25 credit that they can use to provision a logging instance or a monitoring or a database. Um, you can use it for any type of service that you might need to build your app. Awesome. And uh, it's it's interesting. I I don't know if I completely understood what Manifold was until I had actually gone and, and looked at the web page. But essentially what it does is it helps you monitor, as you said, cloud services. But just to give people an idea, you know, some of the things that you've got listed here are uh, Bonsai Elasticsearch or JAWS DB with Maria, MySQL or Postgres. Um, you know, you've got LogDNA, Mailgun. So, I mean, these are the cloud services that you would use to build your system uh, from anything to the database all the way up to mailing systems like Mailgun, monitoring like Scout. Um, you know, just to give you an idea of some of the things that you can pull together. And it yeah, looks yeah. like you can get started for free, which is pretty cool because some of these services aren't free. And I don't know if they even offer a free tier, even if you want to try them out. With credits, they're free. So that if you if you if you use the uh, the MyJS story coupon, you can try any of them out for free, even if they don't have a free plan. Um, and I mean, if we're missing something, if there's something that, that you believe should be there, then like, by all means, let us know. We'd love to add it or better yet, if you're building something and you want help taking it to market like that, that's the vision behind Manifold is, is really helping any developer who thinks they have something that to bring to the world, to bring to other developers, something that's going to make other developers more productive to give them a clear line of sight to that. Uh -huh. Because I think. There's a lot of us. One of the things we realized when we were building uh, GoInstant was that we were really good at we were really good at, at at operating the technology, but building the business that was an entirely different set of problems. Um, so that's really what we want to help with. We want to help connect great developer services with great developers and great developers with great developer services. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, I, I'm curious too. I know that you worked for a while in the development area on that. Now you're working more in the marketing or outreach area. Um, you know, I, I get asked by people sometimes. It's like, okay, so how much coding do you actually do nowadays? And how do you feel about that? So 
Yeah, I'm curious, you know, how has this transition been? And do you do as much coding as you would like? And, and how does that all work out? Yeah, so, I mean, I really... Well, until, to be honest with you, until, until three or four weeks ago, I was the sole front-end developer on the code base. So if you go to Manifold and you think it sucks, then you only have me to blame. That's that's all my fault. <laughs> it's your back-end fault. Yeah, it's my fault. The back-end developers were fantastic. Uh, our designer, Nick Tassone, he used to be responsible for uh, Heroku. He was, he was creative at Heroku previously. Um, a lot of our team is kind of ex-Heroku, ex-Red Hat. Um so there, there's, there's uh, until very recently it was, it was all me, and now we're fortunate enough to bring, to bring some, some really talented uh, front end developers on who are, who, are, who will arguably do a much better job than I ever did. Um, and so yeah, I've moved, I've moved over to growth, and I think that's, you know, for developers that are, that are um, thinking about starting their own company, that's, that's the reality of it. You know, it's you have to help out wherever you can, and, and um, sometimes that's code that you're committing and sometimes it's copy and, and yep. sometimes it's hopping on a flight and having a conversation with somebody on the other side of the world and you just kind of have to be will- willing to, um, to pick up and take care of it. Yeah, I definitely identify with that. I mean, when I started doing the podcast, it was something I did on the side while I was, you know, doing coding contracts and then it just got to the point where it was like, you know what, this needs full time behind it. And so my job became wrangling podcast editors and crap like that you know and and talking to sponsors and talking to um you know different people involved in like i said editing and writing show notes and doing transcripts and man i spend a whole lot more time managing other people than i do anything else yeah 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 you know and i think the risk is that we we lose sight of what we fell in love with to be to begin with yeah you know the way that I personally combat that is I make sure that I never stop looking at um, the problems of my day to day as problems that I can't automate. You know, it's like if I think about um, if I think about the fact that I'm spending, I don't know, 20 minutes uh, creating calendar calendar invitations and I'm doing that on a, on a regular basis, then I start thinking about what I might be able to build that could automate that away. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think of those skills as something that you just have to keep keep applying to the problems that matter to you in any given moment. And if you do that, then, then they stay sharp and, and, and also you stay, you stay in tune. I think anyway, that's worked for me so far. Um, when I joined, um, Heroku to build the developer relations org, the, that I felt it there more than anywhere. I felt I, I, I went into developer relations at Heroku and I was so in tune with what, with what people were building and, and how they were building it and, and why it was being built with those tools. Um, and over the course of um, the course of my time there, I guess a few years, it, it slowly. I just found myself building less and less, and, and managing more and more. And I will say that one of the one of the best things about starting this company was that I got to jump right into the code base and start building stuff. And I just locked myself into a room for honestly like eight months while we built Taurus. Mm-hmm. And man, I gotta say that was a hell of a lot of fun. Yep. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so. Um... I'm trying to think what the next thing that I usually ask is. I knocked you off course. Do we get to do picks in this show? Do you have picks in the show too? We do at the end, yeah. Okay. Picks um, are my favorite part of your shows. I love the picks. Awesome. So so one other thing that I, I tend to ask people a little bit is, you know, you kind of had this arc where you've gone um, you know, into code and then through code and into entrepreneurship. And I know people out there are trying to make that transition. They're trying to 
you know, they're trying to say, oh, hey, I've got this idea. I want to start it up. You know, maybe they're worried they don't have enough money or they don't have enough experience or things like that. Do, do you have any advice or just some, um, you know, some general theme that you feel like you've kind of followed through your career that has led you to be able to, you know, contribute to a company like Manifold and, you know, you know, get into this entrepreneurial uh, point in your life? And, you know, like I, I'm no expert. I, I don't want to I don't want to um, get up on a soul box. But um, one of the things that I'll say that has worked for me is is really identifying the people in your life and in your career that just make you better, that take you to the next level. Because uh-huh. I think a lot of people have that sense of they have that sense that they don't know enough to jump in and start a company. Right. They don't right. either. They, they're not comfortable with marketing or they're not comfortable, comfortable with operations. Uh, they didn't know if they can raise money or they don't know who to talk to. Um, and and in some cases they try it anyway and they focus only on what they're good at and what they know. And maybe that works out and maybe mm-hmm. it doesn't. But the reality is it is is it ignores your greatest resource, which is which is your friends, the people, you know, the people that you've worked with. And I I think we're all kind of collectors as we move through our careers, we find people who we, who we love working with, right? Who, who have answers we don't have, who complement our skill set. And I would just say that if, if entrepreneurship is something that you're thinking about, starting a company is something you think about. The first thing I would, the first question I would, I I would, I would answer is who is it that you want to do it with? Mm -hmm. Right. And and what do they have that you don't, what do they bring to the table? Um, so that, that's probably the, the, the best piece of advice I could give. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because um, I recently reached out to a bunch of people that I know and uh, it, uh, one of them that got back to me is one of those people. And he's like, you know, he's like, yeah, let's get lunch. So we're going to get lunch on Friday. And then he basically said, oh, and I'm bringing on Nate, who's another one of those people for me. And it was just funny. It was like, it was like, man, you know, I just, I've lost touch with a lot of these people and you know, they're right here in Utah, but you know, what, what am I missing out on with that? And it's a, it's a long board. Uh, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a, it's a long game on a short board, right? It's yeah. like, you see a lot, you see a lot of the same, there's a lot of the same players that come back into your life. And I mean, maybe that, that's a good reason never to burn a bridge. Yeah. Um, but it's also a good reason to stay in touch with people. And, and, and honestly, I find in our industry, it really takes some effort because it, it's just so easy to put your head down and I'm, I'm as guilty of this as anyone, but put your head down and into a code base and disappear for a few months. Yep. Right. And then you surface and everyone's just like, well, what happened to you? Where have you been? Um, so putting the effort in and, and I mean, doing like doing what you're doing and just grabbing lunch with people, having coffee with people, there's humans out there, you know, we work well together. So. Yep, absolutely. And it's funny too, because just, uh, by virtue of the podcasts, I feel like I've actually been that for people that I don't know. And, uh, so I've opened that up as well. If you go to devchat.tv slash 15 minutes, that's one five minutes. You can actually talk to me for 15 minutes. And it's funny too, because people are like, I feel like I know you. And, you know, I, I, I listened to these conversations that really affected me. And, you know, I, I think in the same way, you know, the, the work that you do on Manifold or Taurus or the work that other people do on open source or in the communities that they're in or organizing events or whatever it is, you know, you can wind up having an impact and not really know it. And you're one of these people for somebody else. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the first times we talked, I told you that uh, it's, it felt like I already knew you because yeah. I spent so much time listening to you on JavaScript Jabber. Um, and, you know, prior prior to that, I one of the first time I think the first podcast I was ever on was Node Up. And it was because uh -huh. we were one of the first users of Node in a funded startup. We had one of the first user groups around Node in mm -hmm. Halifax. You know, we'd done a successful hackathon and we'd gone to like one of the very early Node events. And Dan, Dan Shaw, he interviewed me in NodeUp and it was just like, man, your community, and it, this, this is true for you too, the, the communities that we build, they, they touch people, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that just moves our whole industry forward. When, when people feel like they have a place, a safe place that they can go and have a conversation about something they care about, and that just brings us all forward, brings us all up. Yep, absolutely. Well, the last section of this is picks. Have you ever felt like you're falling behind or that the programming world is moving so fast that it's impossible to keep up? Then there's the issue of where to go to make sure you're up to date. The answer is to join a community dedicated to discussing the latest in JavaScript. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if you got JavaScript Jabber all day? Well, you can, kind of. We've created a Slack community for JavaScript Jabber. That means that you can connect with our listeners and guests on a platform you're most likely already using. Plus, we've set up a Keeping Current channel that pulls stories from across the web to help you know what people are talking about. And coming soon, we'll be holding monthly webinars and roundtable video chats to connect with experts in the community and with each other. So come join us at javascriptjabber.com slash slack. Um, uh, yes. So do you have some picks for us? Oh, absolutely. Um, I thought of this as you, as you brought up open source. I think we really rely on open source project. And, you know, part of my transition out of enterprise in a, into the startup world was what happened as the result of every project I ever wrote until I was like in my 30s being locked down proprietary in a basement somewhere in a BlackBerry built in a rim building. Um, and I, I hated that. I wanted to work on open source software and I, I've had the opportunity and I love it. If you love open source and you depend on open source and I bet you do, um, then you should give them money or you should give them time. And if you can't give them either of those things, then you should jump on Twitter and at least show them a little love. A great way to do that is through the OpenCollective.com. Um, OpenCollective is essentially a set of tools and services that help you um, support open source projects that you care about um, and be completely transparent about the open source projects that you're currently working on. So you should check it out. Um, they're a great, great bunch of folks. Um, another pick. more uh, uh, Just a straight up fun pick. If you haven't played with... Um, GraphQL yet, but you've been waiting to because GraphQL is awesome and, and fun and you should check it out. Um, but it's hard to set up yourself. You should check out um, Scaffold. Uh, it's a online um, developer service. It's not currently available via Manifold, but I hope that uh, at some point it will be. Um, <laughs> and it's a really easy way to get up and running with uh, with GraphQL. Sounds great. It sounds like GraphQL, which is another... Oh yeah, GraphQL is also a fantastic one. Yep. And we we've had those guys on the the show. So now I have to wind back and try to find that one and listen to it. That's one I missed. Oh really? Yeah. The gra yeah, GraphCool. I've used Scrapple, but I haven't used uh GraphCool yet. So I'll have to give it a go and share my feedback. Yeah, but anyway, um it's it's just nice having those kinds of tools, especially the the software as a service or platform as a service. Um I think some of these are more of like a, a service as a service, I guess. But, yeah. uh, you know, they, they do a lot of things for us that, you know, yeah, I mean, setting up Postgres and figuring out how to secure it, not really that much fun. 
Um, yeah, you know, we, oh, I forgot this one stupid thing and then somebody hacked me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you're building, if you're doing, a, if you're setting up a lot of data, databases, if you're in the agency business and you've uh -huh. got clients and it's their data that's on the line. Yeah. Um, you know, I think the other thing about, about GraphQL in general, that's really, that's really cool. And that changes the game around platform as a service is that it's, it's a protocol. Like it, yeah. it's, it's something that allow if you if you build your application with GraphQL, then you're you're not you're not as tied, you're not as coupled to any particular backend. So you can move from um, GraphQL to Scaffold without mm -hmm. making huge changes, dramatic changes to your application. So I think that's a really good trend. Yep, absolutely. So I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks. Um, and you mentioned that programming is one of those tools that you wind up reaching for in order to do the kind of automation that you need to do, even when you're not dealing with code stuff. Totally. And, uh, you know, it kind of brought to mind a couple of things and I know I've picked them on the various shows before, but I'm just going to pick a few of them again. Uh, one of them is AWS Lambda. Um, you know, there are others in like IBM Bluemix or, um, Microsoft Azure, you know, that, that all kind of do the same thing with like Azure functions and things like that. But yeah, you know, you essentially have this function as a service, which it makes it a, a microservice. I've actually heard people try and coin like Pico service or nano service or something. But anyway, um, it's essentially, right. But it's a function with an endpoint is what it is. Um, you know, and then they manage all of the access so that people aren't, you know, abusing your function as a service with, you know, whatever access you give it. And I've used that for adding people to Slack rooms. I've used it for, you know, just kind of taking a really simple step that there really isn't a great automation for. And on a larger scale, I've used Zapier. So Zapier will connect to your AWS Lambda instances. And it'll do it in a way to where you just give it um, an IAM uh, privileges, which is just the um, access management for uh, Amazon AWS. And what you can do with that is essentially then you say, okay, send this data over to this function. You didn't expose any endpoints to anyone except for Zapier. And you just connect it up and send it through. So somebody signs up through some system on your website. It drops it into Zapier. Zapier does its thing, sends it off to AWS Lambda. Lambda talks to Slack and off you go. Um, and so, you know, a lot of these things it's kind of thinking of things at a higher level because it's how do I connect up these services? Um, but at the same time, I mean, that kind of automation works really, really well. And it's funny too, because you mentioned, again, you know, these business processes being programmed. And so what I've, I figured out too is that that level of specificity in just common documents on how to do a particular process also works out. So it's, I'm not programming a computer. I'm telling somebody how to do a process that I need done. And it's something that, you know, I haven't quite figured out how to automate yet. And so, yeah, I hand them off and, you know, you delegate it. yeah, and off it goes, right? And it just gets done. And so podcast editing and podcast show notes and things like that, it's like, look, this is how it's formatted. And here are the links that I need put in there. And here's how you get an Amazon affiliate link. And here's how you do this. And here's how you do that. And, uh, you know, and then I wind up building out tools. So I actually have a Heroku instance. Um, I guess I'm picking all kinds of stuff, but, uh, <laughs> I have a Heroku instance now that has a tool for my editor 
And so what he does is after he finishes editing the episode, he uploads it to my uh, hosting through Cashfly. And uh, then he just takes the FTP link from Cashfly and drops it into this little tool in a text field. And it comes back and it says, okay, here is the link to the, you know, the download link for the file. And so it generates that for him and it puts it into an audio tag so that he can see, hey, look, the audio tag picked it up and it actually works. And so, um, you know, that's just one of these next level things that I'm working on where it's, okay, you know, we need to figure out, you know, numbers for sponsors is one of the things that I want to figure out, right? So it's, um, I can essentially generate a report for the sponsor that says, you were in these episodes and this is how many downloads they got. Or, um, you know, another one would be, here's the number of downloads that we need to use to calculate the, because I, I use a per thousand downloads model for pricing the sponsorships. And so again, you know, it's like, okay, it, it goes and it connects to the services and then comes back and here are the numbers and here's how you update the, um, you know, the word document that we generate the PDF from. And so it's all, it's all that kind of stuff, but yeah, it's, it's a tool that I reach for. Sometimes it's a, a rather ramshackle, I guess, thing that I put together is not very polished, but it works. Hey, at least you're still finding a way to write code once in a while. That's that's the important thing. We're still yeah. we're still staying relevant. We're still we're still keeping our, our skills sharp. Yeah, barely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh it's been a lot of fun just figuring those things out. One last thing that I'm gonna just throw out there is that I've been doing a Udemy course on Ionic framework for building mobile apps. And that's been a lot of fun. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, one of the things I do to stay current is just go through these courses and sometimes I buy them. This one was on sale for like 10 bucks. If you buy a course on Udemy, wait till it's on sale for 10 bucks. Yeah. They're, and they're great at getting those in front of you. Uh, every yeah. time I open Facebook, I've got another, I'm signing up for another Udemy course that's just on sale and somehow they, yeah. I mean, they, they knew I was looking at it. Yeah. And then I have other courses that people bring to me and say, hey, would you like to be an affiliate on this or something? And so I, I check those out as well, especially if it's a topic that I was interested in learning anyway. And so um, I've got one from Dave Thomas on Elixir. Uh, Dave Thomas from Pragmatic Programmer. So, Oh, and I think Elixir is really, I mean, may, maybe that, that should have been my third pick. I should have picked the language Elixir because I'm really excited about Elixir. I think there's a lot of really interesting things happening in that community. Uh -huh. And having Ruby as a, as a base in terms of community and 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 being uh, what's the what's the VM it's built on beam having that that uh -huh. foundation in terms of technology I mean that's just a magic combination right there yeah well and the other thing is and and I'm not going to belabor this too long and we've already spent way longer on picks than we normally do but um, you know where I see things going with artificial intelligence and it's artificial intelligence AR and IOT um, elixir I don't see it playing a ton in AR or VR, though it, it does parallelize really well. And so some of the AR processing could be done in Elixir, I suppose. But uh, machine learning and just being able to spin up multiple processes across multiple machines and the way that uh, Erlang VM handles talking to various processes. Yeah, it's built right into the language. Yeah, it, 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 I can just see it taken off in Elixir. And then similarly with IoT, um, Elixir has some really, really interesting IoT frameworks that you can work in. And so again, I, I think I think there may be more future there than people really think about. So uh, when when will the Elixir podcast be kicking off? 
So I have this bad habit. I've been talking about a Kickstarter for a React podcast for a while, and I still haven't done it. Um, so I'm planning on doing a Kickstarter for both React and Elixir shows here within the next month. So awesome. by the time this comes out, it'll probably have already been out there and closed. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> so it's a, it's in the backlog. Yes, it is. It's in the backlog. But the backlog is a lie. Anyway, we, we <laughs> should do a show on that. Anyway, um, if people want to check out what you're working on now or follow you on Twitter or GitHub, what do they do? Uh, check out manifold.co. Again, um, use that, that uh, MyJS story coupon for a $25 uh, credit. You can follow me on Twitter at Matt underscore Krieger. Um, and I'm the same alias on everything else, GitHub and all of the other things. Awesome. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. Thanks for coming, Matt. Oh, thank you so much for having me, man. It's a pleasure. All right. We will catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.